Well, thank you. I have nothing against Donald Trump. I'm probably the only person in this room to be grateful to him um, for giving me a, an illustration of the old legend that the Romans communicated by means of letters written on slabs of stone. I was delighted to find this cartoon in the Telegraph a few months ago. It does illustrate the, the old legend and so does this which I've translated for you from a, a German handbook on um, incised texts. Another billet doux from Catullus. Lesbia is lying on the bench eating grapes. The postman brings yet another small poem inscribed on stone. <laughs> well, I'll be telling you, I'm sure, what you know already, which is how the Romans really communicated. And that is that they wrote with a pen or a stylus on paper or wood. And I'm going to illustrate this from the, the new writing tablets found at the Bloomberg London site about three or four years ago. Bloomberg, of course, is a giant media corporation that makes its living selling financial information. And it's appropriate that some of these tablets are indeed financial information, even though perhaps a little bit out of date. This is what the Romans used. They're on display in the British Museum. They used pen and ink on paper or wood, or they used a stylus on wax tablets. And I should say that the methods of writing um, vary according to whether the medium is hard, such as a, a wood or um, metal. You use metal tablets to write to the gods in Roman Britain, or whether the medium is soft, uh, paper and ink. And the letter forms also vary according to date, but this is not something that need concern us today. The Bloomberg tablets belong to really quite a narrow um, date band from about the early 50s AD to the 80s or so. In other words, to the first half century of Roman London and indeed of London, which was founded by the Romans in, in the late 40s. And so the tablets I'll be showing you are the exact contemporaries of the rather better preserved writing tablets from Pompeii and Herculaneum. Well, speaking of Pompeii, here is a famous wall painting from Pompeii showing the baker Terentius Neo and his wife holding the, the two media of, of writing. She's holding two writing tablets there She's pressing a stylus against her lips, and that is how she would write, scratching into the black wax, which is beeswax, colored black with what the Romans called atramentum, which is a sort of finely divided soot made by burning oily wood in a closed chamber, producing a black coloring matter, also used for ink, very much like a modern Indian ink. And the Wax is coated onto thin sheets of a fine-grained, regular-grained wood, usually silver fir, abies alba. And it's neatly recessed on one side and coated with, with this wax there. He, on the other hand, is holding paper, a scroll, a papyrus scroll. And this is the other writing medium, much more like our paper, but in antiquity it came only from Egypt. And 
I'm sure it was used in Britain, but we don't have examples of it from Britain, simply because this is an accident of survival. We don't have the very dry conditions that you get in Egypt. Instead, we have deep waterlogged deposits, anaerobic deposits like those in the city of London. But the Romans, they must have had paper, even if they didn't. Well, they imported wine, fish products, other sort of delicacies like this, olive oil from hundreds of miles away. I'm sure they also imported um, papyrus as well, all the way from Egypt. But at the same time, just as they brewed beer because they couldn't make wine in Britain, they made their local substitute for paper. Uh, And this is the sort of ink texts, ink leaf tablets that you get particularly at Vindlander. More than 800 of these have been found at Vindlander. They've been brilliantly deciphered by two great papyrologists, Alan Bowman and David Thomas. And they have been found at other sites as well. This is the, the local substitute for paper in Britain. It was used elsewhere, but hardly any examples survived. But at Vindlander on Hadrian's Wall, about 800 such tablets and at Carlisle, to the west end of Hadrian's Wall, about 50 tablets. This is one example. It's the bottom of the page. It's the end of an address. The man's name is Lost, but he belongs to a cavalry regiment called the Ala Sebosiana, and he is in the bodyguard. He's one of the singulares of our best-known governor, Gnaeus Julius Agricola. So this is simply a wood shaving, probably sized and then written on in ink as a substitute for paper. Well, a few of these have been found elsewhere. They were certainly used by the Roman army in Britain for paperwork. A scattering have been found at a gravel digging near Oxford, of all places, and even three here from London. This is one that was found at the Bloomberg site. Unusually, unlike the Vindolanda tablets, it wasn't necessarily used infrared to, to read it. It could be read straight out of the ground, in fact. It's what we call a diptych, which is a rectangular piece of wood like that, folded down the middle, and then inscribed in two columns, one there and one there. It's a format very common at Vindolanda, unique at, at Bloomberg, A man is writing to his dearest friend, probably Januarius, greetings, salutem, and then the letter follows down that page and that page. A few letters, you can see a nice B there, for example, but one can't really read the text. Well, these have hardly been found outside Britain, but we certainly know they were used elsewhere. There's a story that comes in various forms of of the emperor who makes up a hit list for people to be executed, and the list on a tablet falls into the hands of number one on the list, and so the emperor is assassinated instead. (laughs) Well, this story has been often condemned as fiction, but the tablet itself isn't fictional. It's described as a sheet of lime wood folded in half. And this is exactly what the Vindolanda tablets are. They call themselves Telia, lime wood, although in fact they're alder wood. And we've got various references to the use of such tablets. The jurist Alpion details the various forms in which documents can be issued. He says you can use papyrus, parchment, wax tablets, and lime wood, telia. And we even 
have a literary reference of such tablets being used in Britain. The governor, Alpius Marcellus, advertised his vigilance by, before he went to bed each evening, he wrote out 12 tablets. And he made sure these tablets were distributed at early intervals during the night so that his staff would think he was still awake. <laughs> and these tablets are described as limewood tablets, telia. So I'm sure that more of these tablets will turn up on the continent. It's very much an accident of survival. We do have one or two ink tablets from the Bloomberg site, but they're of a special sort. They're stylus tablets, normally used for wax, but have been inscribed in ink instead. They don't come from the Bloomberg site, but we've got one or two examples from London. We've got one from a villa in Somerset, and I emphasise this because there are something like 70 writing styluses have been found at Roman villas in this country and pretty well no stylus tablets apart from this one. There is that one from London. It's a stylus tablet, but on the outside it has been inscribed in, in ink. It's the end of a loan note. Someone promises faithfully to repay money lent by the 3rd of December, 158. And that's a duplicate on the outside in ink of a text that was inscribed on the wax on the inside and then sealed up so that it couldn't be altered. Well, I'm not going to talk any more about ink texts. I just want to make you aware that they do exist. What I'm going to talk about are stylus waxed tablets and there's many examples of these from all over the Roman Empire, and there's quite a number of interesting Roman illustrations of, of them being used. I've chosen two from different social levels from the city of Rome. The first is the interior of a butcher's shop. The butcher is chopping meat on his block here. His wife is sitting in a high-backed chair there, and on her lap she has a block of writing tablets, and she's keeping the accounts. Show you the way which tablets are used for keeping accounts, notes of all kind. At a rather grander level, there's this pair of ivory, um, uh, it's a, what's called a diptych, a pair of um, ivory tablets hinged together, giving two illustrations of a high official at Rome, the direct deputy of the Praetorian prefect, the vicar of Rome, Michael Probianus, who is sitting on his throne here with an extraordinary inkstand behind him, with a roll of paper on his lap, and he has a secretary either side of him holding a block of writing tablets and a stylus. And down below are two petitioners with their hands up like this, which is a late Roman gesture saying, I have something to say to you, and he's giving his decision, and the secretaries are making notes, showing how tablets are used all the time to take notes, to write letters, to render accounts, all sorts of purposes of this kind. Pliny, the letter writer, for example, says that when he went hunting, he always took a block of tablets with him, so that even if he didn't actually catch anything, he had something to bring home in the bag, whether it was a letter or a draft poem or something of that sort. So, so you see, this is a very versatile medium. A pair of tablets can be used to to write a letter. The outside is plain wood, it's protected, the inside is wax, and that's what you write on, and then it's bound up and sealed. Or a legal document can be written on three tablets with an inner text which is sealed against illicit alteration, and an outer text which can be used for consultation. 
or it can be an account, and I'll show one or two examples of that in due course. And in fact, many texts are legal texts simply because these were filed for future reference and so weren't reused. But the important thing to emphasize is that in Britain, tablets are not found in dry conditions as they are in Egypt. The wax has almost always disappeared. Even at Pompeii and Herculaneum, in the special circumstances of the eruption of 79, tablets do survive with their wax. There's even a collection found in the early 19th century in a gold mine in Transylvania, in what's now northern Romania. These have their wax on them. But here in benighted Britain, and indeed in much of northwest Europe, where tablets are found in deep anaerobic waterlogged deposits, this wax has disappeared, although the anaerobic conditions have preserved the organic material, the wood. So, the Bloomberg excavation on on the lower Walbrook. This is in the heart of the city. It's just north of where the Walbrook runs into the Thames. The Walbrook is, is a group of streams that drained the marshes to the north of London. They ran southwards and they met the Thames, just there. They've all disappeared. One branch of the Walbrook actually runs under the Bank of England, but they're now deep underground in sewers and, and culverts. But the, the Roman settlement started on Cornhill, there where I've marked Forum, and it spread gradually westwards across the Walbrook, and just at the crossing point is the Bloomberg site. This was the site of a building notorious in um, London building history, Bucklersbury House. It was an elegant pile built in 1954, about as pretty as a brick on end. And in the course of building it, they found the Mithraeum, which the Romans had built just across the Walbrook. Londoners queued for weeks to see the Mithraeum, but it was nonetheless demolished to accommodate the deep basements of Bucklersbury House. And I may say that um, it was a condition of redevelopment, of demolition of Bucklersbury House and redevelopment of the site, that archaeologists were once again allowed to investigate the site. And, and this is it here. In the background is number one poultry, this Neapolitan ice cream building where the most interesting writing tablet was found a few years ago, which is the deed of sale of a Gallic slave girl. But this here is the bed of the Walbrook, where most of the tablets came from on the Bloomberg site. The Mithraeum was roughly here, and it's wonderful, um, greatly to the credit of Bloomberg's, that they've rebuilt the Mithraeum, and if you go to the Bloomberg place now, you can see their new visitor centre, and you can see the magnificently rebuilt um, Mithraeum, but that's rather later than the mid-first century date I'll be talking about. I'm talking about... Um, a band of tablets found both before and after Queen Boudicca destroyed London in 60 or 61. And these tablets can be quite closely dated because they're associated with dumped material on the banks of the Walbrook. And some of them are even dated to the day internally. I'll show some tablets which have a precise date to them. 
I'll show you my favourite, in fact, which is the 8th of January, 57, which is less than 10 years after the Romans founded London. But I should emphasise that these stylus tablets, unlike those from Pompeii and Herculaneum, do not form an archive. They were not systematically collected in antiquity and then preserved by destruction, by catastrophe. They are simply rubbish, waste paper. They, they come from Roman landfill, and, and they have no sort of collective significance except such as we um, give them. And, of course, they have lost their wax. That's a sort of deposit in which um, they're being found. This is uh, the archaeologists of Mola discovering a, um, a basket deep in the muddy silts of, of the Walbrook. And this is one of the writing tablets, unusually, still has some of the black wax sticking to it. These are sort of deposits of wax there. There's no writing in the wax. Um, it's lost its original surface, but... The fact that some wax still survives is unusual, but this is, um, in fact, very unusual indeed. In, in, instead, what you must do, well, what, what, the, what Mola did was to make a reconstruction of this tablet. And this is a, a modern copy of a writing tablet with a black wax surface there. I'm holding a a stylus, also from the excavation, I'm scratching a pastiche of a letter complaining of transport animals being stolen, which I'll show you later. So that's how you must imagine the, the tablets were originally trans, uh, transcribed. The instrument used was a stylus, which is a sort of steel knitting needle with a sharp point one end and a broadened out end there, the fishtail, which is used that if you make a mistake or want to change something, you simply use the other end of your stylus and smooth out the wax and, and write what you want on top of what had been there before. And I'll show you one or two examples where we can see that process actually happening on the Bloomberg tablets. It was also possible to delete the whole text you simply took a, a wide-bladed spatula, and this is an example from the Bloomberg excavation. You heated it up and you drew it over the writing on the wax tablet. It, it melted the wax and you ended up with a nice smooth surface in which you could write something totally different. So the wax tablets are very much like a, a notebook, but they're very much like an iPad as well because they have this reusable quality. Well, the good news is that the Romans often pressed pretty hard with that sharp-pointed stylus, and there's quite a number of stories of styluses being used casually as weapons. Um, they were obviously carried rather like a barrow today, but they were far more formidable than that. Romans could write all the time like that with, with styluses, um, and they pressed pretty hard. They cut into the wood underneath, and they left scratches behind. And it's these scratches that people like me have to work from, because the the wax itself has gone. Well, that's the good news. You can actually read this text sometimes. The bad news is that if the tablet has been reused, then you've got more than one text there, and you may have a dozen texts, and they all have left their scratches, and you're simply left with a, a maze of, of spiders' webs or chickens' feet, and you can't get any further. 
This is a, a terrible example of, of what might happen. It's a tablet that was found at Vindolanda, a stylus tablet, which exceptionally still had its um, wax on it. And you can see the lines of Roman handwriting there. It was possible to read this tablet. It's actually part of a business letter from a man called Albanus or Albinus to his friend Bellus. I'm talking about transport charges. He says eight denarii are owing. And on the other side, the letter is actually addressed um, to Albanus at Cataric, Cataractonium. It was found at Vindolanda, though, and the reason for this is that it was a letter written to Albinus at Cataric, which he then reused um, to write to Bellus at Vindolanda, where it was found. And the trouble is, when it was um, put into conservation, the wax all floated off, and you were left with the wood. And all you've got on the wood is a series of scratches left by multiple texts. And it's now impossible, but uniquely this tablet, you can get a sort of before and after effect of what a writing tablet would have looked like and how impossible it, it can be today. It's rather like a, a story that comes in various forms. It comes in Herodotus, it comes in the Encyclopedist Aulus Gellius um, of steganography, um, secret writing, um, a cunning Carthaginian general decided to send a secret message and he did so by taking a new stylus tablet, scratching on it on the wood of his message and then coating it with black wax and then sending that through the post. So if it was intercepted no one would be able to read anything on it. And then the, re the recipient got the tablet, scraped off the wax and read the secret message. It's a story that occurs in various forms. It often seems to me that the cunning Carthaginian general would have been more cunning if he'd written another message on top and that had then been scraped off. But I, to, to do him justice, I think he was probably afraid that he would destroy the message underneath and in which case I have great sympathy for him because I've seen many a tablet where exactly this ha has happened. Well, these Bloomberg tablets, as I say, are, are they're rubbish. They are Roman landfill. That's what they look like when they come out of the ground. A rather happier collection was found in this room on the site. It's a timber-framed room. The, um, no fewer than 19 pieces of tablets were found um, in the floor makeup of that room. The archaeologists even called it London's first office. But the tablets are just there as, as rubbish. They're sort of trodden in the floor like waste paper. They don't have any sort of inner consistency to them. Here is one of those tablets, almost complete. It shows rather nicely the, the notch you get at the top and the bottom where the binding cord um, went round a block of tablets. It has two holes there and there, which is where the tablets were hinged t together um, with their two waxed faces facing each other. And you can see that even though the, the wood has survived, it's in pretty poor state. It's lost its original surface all over there and there and there. Um, corner's gone there, and it's broken along the grain, as tablets always do. But there is a little bit of writing which could be recovered, and I've highlighted it here. We've got the remains... <laughs> Of, of the date of the consuls, and their names are Fonteus Capito, Julius Rufus, their consuls in 67. And the text has the sequence Vangio there, V-A-N-G-I-O, which can only be a reference to a, a 
the Roman battalion called the first cohort of Vangiones, which we know was part of the garrison of Britain, and here turns up for the first time. And we know from Tacitus, the historian, that in fact, after the Boudican revolt was crushed in 61, eight such auxiliary battalions were drafted into Britain to reinforce the army from the Rhineland. The Vangiones were a tribe of the Rhineland. This is clearly one of the units that came in. Other tantalizing scraps. You can see the word filium, meaning a son, and the beginning of the word omnium, everything, which is probably a standard phrase from a Roman will, all my property. But I think, at a guess, this is actually the first page of someone's will, which for some reason was perhaps saved for reuse and was never reused and ended up on the floor of that building. It's a nice example of how you can write a, a sort of a whole um, biography from a tiny scrap of writing, and I'll show you one or two more examples of that kind in due course. The archaeologists, meanwhile, have been finding hundreds of these tablets, and they got in touch with me in Oxford, and they said, would I like to work on them? Well, I said, of course I would. Um, I didn't realise how big a job it was going to be, but I'm, I'm glad I said yes. What I did was to go to London a number of times and to work through the tablets when they were still wet from coming out of the ground and try and make up my mind by quick examination which ones were possible and which ones weren't. Many of the tablets, I should say, were blank and many of them simply had notches and scratches and were, had been reused so many times no sort of text was going to be recovered. But I picked out from the 400-odd tablets they found something like 80 to 100 um, possibles which seemed to have some text to them. This is one of the better examples. It's actually not a wax uh, tablet, but the, it's the outside of a wax tablet. Um, this is a plain wooden face. It's been scratched with a stylus with the address of a letter, Londinio Mogontio, to Mogontius in London. One of a number of tablets which have the, the name Londinium uh, on them as part of the address. One tablet even spells it as Lodino, um, no doubt because the name was so new and unfamiliar. So this was a, a hopeful tablet. I looked forward to that one coming to me. And, and so was this one. You can just about see that it's got um, scratches in it. There's a scratch there, one or two more there. And I saw this when it was wet on the conservator's bench, and I could read the first word, um, which was the word Nero. I knew it was going to be part of a consular date. I knew it was going to be a consulship of the emperor Nero. His first consulship is in, um, I think it's in 50, and his fourth is in six, uh, 55. So it was a date between 55 and 60, um, the years in which he held the consulship, the, the nominal headship of state. So it was exciting to pick this piece of wood up off the bench and know that it was from some time in the 50s. I then waited several weeks until it was photographed and, and sent to me. This was Andy Chopping of Mola taking the photographs. He made me multiple photographs of each tablet, four photographs with a low raking light from different angles so that I could reconstruct the scratches photographically and use them as the basis of my drawing. I had the tablet on my desk, I had his, his photographs mounted in Photoshop on, on a laptop, and to my left I had a binocular microscope and a flexible light source, and I shone this over the tablet itself. 
and using these various aids, I was then able to draw uh, the tablet. This was my method. It may not be everyone's method, but um, it's a method I found worked well because the, the practice of drawing a tablet forces you to read it and get into the feel of the letters. I say drawing and not tracing. It's rather more than tracing. You have to decide on whether um, a damage or a mark is deliberate or not, whether it, it, it forms a letter. And you're hardly, in fact, reading letter by letter. You're reading word by word. And a word sort of guarantees the letters uh, within it. And, and these are the sort of letter forms uh, that I came up with. I was thinking as I came into London this morning, passing the graffiti as you're coming into Paddington, how I couldn't read any of them. They were obviously a sort of distorted letter forms of some sort, and, and the, the writers were making some statement or other, but either I just didn't want to read them or I couldn't. But in the case of stylus letter forms, you get into the hang of it, and this is the, the sort of letter forms that I came up with. Mercifully, they're very much the same as in contemporary stylus tablets from Pompeii and Herculaneum from Egypt um, and the rather later tablets from Transylvania. The, the writer is using his sharp-pointed stylus. He's making short little diagonal strokes or sometimes sinuous strokes, drawing the needle towards him and, and making these letters. Some letters are very good news, like S, which is a nice, nice long letter, or Q with a big long descender here, um, or C, which looks like our C. B is a problem because you see that the loop of B is the wrong side. Sometime in the third century, that, that loop shifts to the other side to our modern B shape. And some letters, like E and U, can look really rather similar. But this was a, a slide I put together for Bloomberg's when we gave a presentation during their lunch break. Uh, and so I, I gave them a word I thought they would recognise uh, at the top there. And I do emphasise that I was not simply tracing um, the, these texts, but I, I, I was drawing them. And one day, I'm sure, a computer will do this much more, much faster than me. And probably the way forward is a a method called RTI, Reflectance Transformation Imaging, whereby as many as 72 photographs are taken of a tablet with different lights. And these are combined by sort of software into a video, which is almost as if you've got the object itself in front of you and you're shifting it around uh, in a steady stream of light. I have to admit, I find this rather cumbersome. I'm, I'm, I keep hoping that I'll meet a Californian geek who will design me an interface between RTI and my, my drawing face. But at the moment, I work rather more primitively, and you probably concluded by now that I'm a sort of digital dinosaur. I, I work in a primitive sort of way from three or four photographs in Photoshop, making my drawing, feeling my fingers into the fingers of the Roman scribe, and if I'm lucky, enjoying these moments of illumination, just like the, the Bletchley Park intercepts and decipherment, when suddenly it starts making sense. Well, back to that tablet I showed you, which had um, the name of Nero at the date. This is what it actually came out like. This is, this is the drawing I made. There's Neroni Claudio Germanico, as I showed on a previous slide. And, and this is a, a two-line heading of the consulship of Nero and a man called Lucius Calpurnius Piso, which is equivalent to 57. And the date, which is six days before the Ides, 
of January, mid-January. Mid and then the text, which I've translated for you here, is dated 8th of January, 57. One freedman, a former slave, has written to another freedman saying he owes him 105 denarii, which sum he will repay um, or, or to the person whom the matter will concern. It's a fairly typical um, receipt note. I immediately told Bloomberg's, who after all make a living selling these things, that this is the first financial document to come out of the City of London, 8th of January, 57, less than 10 years after the foundation of London, even if out of date. Well, 105 denarii is quite a good sum of money. It's about half what a Roman soldier would have earned in a year, 225 denarii. They're silver coins, rather like old-fashioned shillings. But it's nothing compared with Pompeii. I was very struck by the coincidence coming across a Pompeian tablet, which is written on the Ides of January in that year, that's to say on the 13th of January, less than a week later, in which a man called Marcus Fabius Secundus writes to acknowledge the receipt of 10,305 sesterces from an auctioneer. And this is more than 2,500 denarii, something like 25 times what Venastus, um, what... what um, but what, what the two freedmen, um, Tibullus and, and, and Gratus, were, were dealing with. It does show that, if you like, the Bay of Naples in the year 57 was a very much more prosperous place than this Hick settlement on the Thames estuary, which nonetheless had a reasonable future ahead of it. But it also illustrates very well what Tacitus says of London precisely in 61 when it was destroyed by Boudicca. It was very full of businessmen and commerce, copia negotiatorum et comeatum maxime celebre, he writes. And as I went on reading the tablets, I found this picture was reinforced, that early London was very much a vigorous business community at exploiting the new province. And the most important, historically speaking, of the tablets I was then able to read uh, is this one. It's a contract, the first page of a contract... Uh, it has the usual consular heading, um, which is the equivalent of the 21st of October, 62, and bear that date in mind. It's written by a man called Marcus Renius Venustus. He says that he's contracted with Gaius Valerius Proculus, both Roman citizens, incidentally, that he bring from Verulamium by the 13th of November 20 loads of provisions at a transport charge, and then it breaks off in rather complicated conditions of, of the payment and payment being withheld until the job's being completed. I, I talked about the reuse of tablets, the correction of tablets. Oddly enough, this man wrote their L-O-N-D-I, the beginning of Londinio, saying the, the foodstuffs were to come from London. Then he suddenly realised, no, damn, it's not London, it's Verulamium. And so... As he didn't have room on that line for Verulamio, he wrote it on the next line, Verulamio there. He must have wiped that out, but it still shows in the wood, and wrote it instead, from Verulamium to London. Well, I've emphasised the date of that. It is within a year or so of London being destroyed. According to Tacitus, it was... Verulamium and London were burnt down by Queen Boudicca. 70,000 people were killed. And yet within one or two years, depending on whether it's 60 or 61, you find the two cities communicating and one city provisioning the other. 
It's a wonderful testament to the resilience of these immigrants who brought literacy to Roman Britain. And it's very much like the, the 1940s propaganda film, London Can Take It. I, I, I very much admire this early community in London. Well, those are probably the most important texts, um, the, the documents of 57 and 61, but I'll show you a few others which reinforce this picture of London as a thriving business community and also as a, a military base and a seat of, of civil administration. The formal capital of Britain was Colchester, which had been the original capital of the kingdom that, that preceded um, the, the Roman province, but it was being displaced by London, which is much better placed geographically than Colchester. And there's a tablet which hints quite broadly that the governor was present. This is a, a report, um, a what's called a priudicium, a prelim preliminary judgment, by a judge. It, it's dated 22nd of October, 76, a consulship of the Emperor Vespasian and his son Titus. And the judge says that responsibility for hearing the case between um, Litugenus and Magunus on the 9th of November, having been given me by the emperor, my judgment is priudico, and then, of course, like all papari, it breaks off at the interesting point. He doesn't say... <laughs> But this was, he was giving a, a judgment on a point of law which had arisen in the course of preparation for the lawsuit. And it's interesting, he was appointed by the emperor to hear the case. In other words, he was appointed by the provincial governor. He was not appointed by um, local magistrates who had judicial responsibility, the so-called duumviri juridicundo, because they didn't exist. London at that date was still directly administered by the Roman governor or perhaps by his deputy, um, the the chief Eurydicus, the man who was responsible for, for, for law enforcement. The first one we know appointed was actually in, in 78, so it might have been him instead. But it does show that the, the governor is there and, and directly responsible. But the prime evidence that London was the capital of Britain is a bit earlier than this. It's this tombstone now in the British Museum, two large chunks of this huge altar tombstone were found in the East City Wall of London, near the Tower of London, and they belong to a very well-inscribed um, stone, Dis Manibus, to the shades of the deceased Alpinus Classicianus. When it was found, um, the, the London antiquary Charles Roach Smith said, ah, yes, this is the Classicianus, the procurator of Britain, appointed by um, Nero. We know all about him from Tacitus. He was appointed to clear up the abuses which had caused the revolt of Boudicca. And informed epigraphic comment of the time, this is in about 1860, um, said, this is nonsense, can't be the same man. And even the great Collingwood, who was the editor of Roman inscriptions in Britain, said it needs no refutation. And then a year or two after Collingwood had written that, the other piece turned up. And it says precisely, procurator of the province of Britain, buried by his wife Julia, the daughter of Inda, Julia Peccata, his wife, Uxor. And it is indeed the procurator, the man responsible for the public finance of Britain, who died in office, appointed in 61, must have died later in the 60s. And, and with this fascinating detail of his background, that he was married to Julia Peccata, whose 
father is also well known, Julius Indus. He was a pro-Roman aristocrat from Trier in the Mosul Valley. He was rich enough to raise a cavalry regiment in a moment of crisis in 21, when there was a local rebellion. And this regiment, the Ala Indiana, in fact, later became part of the garrison of Britain. So Classicianus was a member of the, the local Treveran aristocracy, very well connected. And here he is dying in office in Britain. Well, I'll come back to um, Julia Pacata. Um, I include her partly out of a sense of guilt. Um, one of the great omissions of the Bloomberg tablets, which I, I should be going on and on about, um, is they don't mention a single woman. Julia Pacata is perhaps one of the best known women in early Britain, but we have none of them uh, in, in the tablets. It is, one suspects, very much a business community. Well, something like 400 tablets, of which about 80 um, produce some sort of text. And, and, and they're what I've called in, in my book London's, Roman London's First Voices. Some of them are just scraps of letters, like this one. This is another letter addressed, Dabes, you will give this letter to Junius, um, the Cooper who lives contra Catulum, opposite the house of Catullus. The word cuparius is quite uncommon. Um, it comes from cooper, meaning a barrel. He was a barrel maker. But there is a barrel which the archaeologists duly discovered in their excavation, showing the way in which wood is well preserved. Uh, the, the barrel is made out of silver fir, the same wood that the writing tablets are made out of. And it's an interesting theory, um, which is borne out by offcuts of wood from the site, that they are actually recycling barrel staves um, to make writing tablets. From my point of view, I'm far more interested in what's inside the barrel. Um, there's another barrel from another London site, which is actually inscribed with, with the name of the brewer, who is called Tertius. And there's an account, which I won't be showing you, but um, because it's rather complicated, but it, it details successive deliveries of beer, cavesa, and, and the price they cost. But I'd like to connect them with this address, tertio brachiario. Brachiarius is a very rare word. It seems to be something to do with brachi, which is a kind of grain. This man, Tertius, was either a, a corn chandler, or he was a maltster, or he was a brewer. It's a word that occurs once or twice at Vindolanda, and that's about it. But interestingly, it does turn up also at Carlisle. This is a writing tablet found a few years ago at Carlisle, addressed to Domitius Tertius, the Brachiarius Lugualio at Carlisle. Tertius is not a very uncommon name, but Brachiarius is very uncommon. And pretty certainly this is the same man, both in London and in Carlisle, showing the way in which the London business community is extending its tentacles not merely as far as Verulamium, but to the, to the new northern frontier uh, at Carlisle. Well, unfortunately, I couldn't read the letter on the inner face, on the waxed surface of this tablet, but I was able to um, eavesdrop on various other business conversations, and I'll show you some examples of that now. I, I was amused to find that Roman businessmen were confronting much the same sort of problems that I find in the business pages of the Times and the Telegraph. Uh, they, they had transport problems or, or problems with cash flow. 
um, or problems of investment. And I'll show you examples of each of these. This was a, a complete page which was found. It's the letter I was writing a copy of in that earlier slide. You can't really see anything of the scratches on it over there, but that, that's what the text looks like. It's largely complete. It's written by a man called Taurus to his friend Macrinus. Um, greetings. He, he wishes, hopes that he's well, and then he goes on to say that so-and-so came and took away um, the animals, the transport animals, the Umenta, and they are investments, he says, which I can't replace within three months. And he says the man came suddenly while I was away at the house of Diogenes and took them. It breaks off at that point. He uses quite a rare Latin verb, superwainit, which means to sort of to bounce down on someone like, like Tigger. <laughs> he took the Umenta. And I call him Taurus there, but if you look at that and you know Roman cursive, there are in fact two words written there. One is Taurus, there is Taurinus, as if he doesn't know what his name is. Um, I think Taurinus is written by attraction to the recipient, which is Macrinus, and the man was really called Taurus, and that he wasn't actually writing the letter, but dictating it to, to a secretary. When he checked it, he found the name was wrong and got the secretary to correct it. And we've got instances of letters written by secretaries, like, like this one, for example. It, it's a receipt which is written by a man called Florentinus, who says that he is the slave of, of, of Sextus Cassius, and he's written by order of his master that he's received two payments in respect of such and such a farm. And it's dated um, to a month. I'm afraid the month is missing, but it's towards the end of the year, um, uh, the year 64. It's a, it's a receipt written by order of my master, which is a phrase that one gets in a couple of, legal, uh, a couple of financial texts from Pompeii as well clear example of freedmen and slaves acting as business associates, secretaries, partners of their masters. There's another letter which is written by someone called Secundio to his freedman, telling him to receive a note of hand, a chirograph, uh, from someone else's slave who isn't actually even named, but the master of the slave is named. Well, Problems of cash flow. There's this extraordinary text turned up. It, it, it's, it starts in, in, in mid-sentence there. Rogo te, I ask you, per panem et salem, by bread and salt, ut quam primum mitas denarios, that you send the money as soon as possible. And then he specifies 26 denarii in the form of victoriati and 10 denarii belonging to paterio. Send it by bread and salt. It's a unique phrase. It seems to refer to hospitality. And I can only suppose the man has given him a free lunch and now wants something back for it. The numismatists are all excited about this letter too because it refers to victoriati, which are actually a coin of the second century BC, which was struck by the Romans at the half denarius um, standard um, to match a, a Greek drachma, but hadn't been minted for many years. It may be an informal term for a half denarius, which is known as a quinarius, but there again, they hadn't been minted uh, at the time this, uh, this document was found in the 60s, just by its archaeological context. They hadn't been minted for 50 years, and they're pretty scarce. 
We don't know the answer to that. Either someone had been simply collecting these antique coins because of their high silver content, or, or it may be an informal term for uh, a Celtic silver coinage, which was struck on the, on the drachma um, standard. Well, the third example I was going to show of, of business problems in the early community is also rather elusive. This one, again, starts in mid-sentence, quia per forum totum glorianta, because they're boasting throughout the whole forum, throughout the whole marketplace. It goes on to have the rather uncommon verb, finerasi, that you have lent them money. And the, the, the rest of it is rather difficult to, to understand, but it seems to be um, he's saying something like, I ask you in your own interest not to appear shabby, terpis, shameful. You will not thus favour your own best affairs. It's usually a piece of the sort of moralising advice that people give. After they've given you bad news, they then try and make it right by telling you to behave like a decent chap. We don't even know who they are. It's frustrating, this in the tablets. We can find, I think, something like 92 names of people in the tablets, the first generation of Roman Londoners, but we don't know who these people were who'd been boasting that they'd been lent money. What seems to be happening is that they are people who are not creditworthy, but they've managed to get cash out of the recipient of this letter. We've got other evidence in the Bloomberg tablets of, of loan notes, of, of documents acknowledging receipt of money and promise to repay it with interest due by such and such a date. There's clearly a cash economy and a credit economy operating in early London. This tablet seems to refer to it, but it refers to the downside of it. I like to think of it as the, the first bad investment made in the city of London. Well, we don't know who they are. We've got, as I say, about 92 names from the tablets. I haven't got time to show you them, but um, one example of a list of names. These are the names of the witnesses who, who sign their names against a binding cord which goes down that groove there, and the name is written either side, Longinus, Agrippa, Veracundus, both all of them quite common Roman names. And interesting enough, they identify themselves with the military subunits they belong to. Um, initiate a turma, a cavalry troop of about 30 men, which is a subdivision of a cavalry regiment. Um, the troop of, of, that's the name of the Decurian Marshal or something like that, the troop of Silvanus and the troop of Silvanus. Both these men belong to the same subunit. And the interesting thing is you can't really see, but um, those are the two places where Tur Silvani is written, and in fact the handwriting is different. And I think the what that shows is that these men were basically literate. Although they are common cavalry soldiers, they could sign their names and, and they could um, identify themselves. It's an interesting index of how far literacy might extend down the social scale uh, in the Roman world. Well, there's other evidence of soldiers in the tablets other evidence of, of units being um, drafted in after the defeat of Boudicca, um, just as the archaeologists found military equipment, cavalry equipment, for example, in, in the course of the dig. I haven't got time to go into that now, um, but I thought I'd conclude by showing you that's the most remarkable soldier's name that turned up among the tablets. And 
Also, the most remarkable evidence, really, of reinforcement from Germany after the death of Boudicca in, in 61. And, and it's this tablet. It's the bottom of a page. It, it reads, Classico Praefecto Cohortis um, Six Nerviorum. Um, Classicus, the prefect, the commanding officer of the sixth cohort of Nervii. The Nervii were a tribe uh, in, in more or less modern Belgium, the Lower Rhineland area. Um, they were famous for having very nearly defeated Julius Caesar in his conquest of Gaul, and they provided a number of units in the Roman army, including the sixth cohort, which turns up in later inscriptions from the north of Britain uh, as part of the garrison of Britain. This is the earliest mention of the sixth Nervians in Britain, clearly showing that they are one of the units drafted into Britain after the defeat of Boudicca in 61. Tacitus says that there were eight such cohorts, although he doesn't give their names. And the archaeological context in which this was found is sometime in the 60s, uh, in other words, immediately after the, um, the defeat of, of Boudicca. But the really interesting detail is the man's name, the commanding officer of this battalion. He's called Classicus. And oddly enough, Classicus is quite a rare Roman name. And the only example one can find of someone who pursued an equestrian military career, let's say commanding a series of military auxiliary units of increasing importance, there's only one Classicus known, and he is Julius Classicus, and he's a man well known to history because he comes in Tacitus. In the year 69, rather later than this tablet, he was commanding a cavalry regiment uh, in the Rhineland, and he rebelled against um, Rome. He very nearly um, shook off Roman control of the Rhine frontier in consequence. And the dates fit nicely. A cavalry, command, a cavalry regiment commander would probably have commanded a, an infantry battalion like the Nervii about 10 years earlier. So one could suggest this is a date of the early 60s, which matches the archaeology quite nicely, uh, and that it's at the beginning of Julius Classicus's career. And if you cast your minds back to Julia Pacata and to Classicianus of Trier, one can start putting Classicus into context, because Tacitus gives us some precious details of Classicus. He says that he came from Trier. He was a member of the local aristocracy. He had kings of Trier among his ancestry. He had more enemies of Rome, in fact, than friends of Rome among his ancestry. But he was a... Um, a Roman officer and a gentleman, just like Classicianus. Classicianus, um, we know from a rather unfavourable account that Tacitus gives, um, actually secured the dismissal of the governor of Britain, Suetonius Paulinus, because he thought he was being too harsh towards the newly conquered Britons. And it may be that Classicianus, with his aristocratic but non-Roman background, was sympathetic to the population of a new province. And in a way, perhaps Classicus was as well. But the really interesting thing is, these two men were almost certainly related. They came from the same place. They had the same sort of name, Classicus and Classicianus. And the connection, I think, is that when Classicianus was sent to Britain as the new financial governor, he got a job for a, a young cousin of his, commanding one of the units drafted into Britain at that date. And this man for historical reasons, has an interesting career. Ten years later, in 69-70, in Tacitus's words, he actually dresses up as a Roman general to receive the surrender of 
Roman legionaries who had surrendered in the course of the vicious fighting on, on the Rhine. He was one of the leaders of the Great Revolt, which very nearly succeeded, and dressed up as a Roman general to destroy Rome. Well, those are Tacitus's words, and I was delighted to have the privilege of writing a footnote to them by, by reading this scrap of wood out of the mud of London. And I've enjoyed telling you about these scraps of wood, and thank you for listening. <laughs>